This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, April 23, 2008. I'm Caleb Brown. An allegation of rape has now opened up a group of fundamentalist Latter-day Saints to the world. But now hundreds of children are in state custody awaiting placement in foster care. No other claims of abuse have emerged, and the basis for the original claim of rape seems more dubious than it did three weeks ago. But why has Child Protective Services in Texas insisted that these children be kept from their families? Tim Lynch, the director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice, explains. What started out as a reasonable investigation into an allegation of rape has turned into a high-handed seizure of 400 children from their parents and from their home. The police went in when they received uh, an anonymous call from a 16-year-old girl that she had been beaten and raped. And it's been three weeks now, and the authorities basically admit that they have not found this 16-year-old girl, and they're beginning to think that the initial call was bogus. But what they are doing is they're moving towards the transfer of custody of 400 kids uh, away from this community and into foster care. And I think we should be very concerned about the legal precedent that is being put in place here by the state of Texas. It's a serious matter when the authorities want to question a child outside of the presence of their parents or without their knowledge or consent. That's serious. It's very serious if the if the state wants to temporarily remove custody of their parents for a period of days or weeks. And I think it's an extremely serious situation when the state is saying that they're going to move for a permanent transfer of custody, permanently take the kids away from their parents and move them into foster care. There are situations where that's appropriate. But I think what we want to do is make sure that the legal threshold for such a drastic move by the state is high and that they require real evidence and proof of wrongdoing in order for that to occur. And I, and I see those standards being watered down here in this case, and that's what we need to be concerned about. Specifically, what do you see that differs here from a routine criminal investigation where you have uh, allegations of domestic abuse? Well, in the routine case, we have like an individual case, like one child, one family, one household. What makes this case different is the sheer scale of everything, the fact that we have four, 400 kids. And one thing that I think it's important to note is that it's been three weeks now, and we haven't had a case of like, for example, like a 15-year-old or 16-year-old girl coming out and saying, thank you for rescuing me. They beat the hell out of me in there every week, and I was basically held there hostage. Thank you for coming in and rescuing me. 400 kids, three weeks, we haven't got that type of a, of a, of a, of a situation yet. And I think that raises questions. The, the, the Child Protective Services are beginning to say things like, it's a dangerous, inherently dangerous community. The reason why we don't have cases like that is because everybody is brainwashed and is in denial. And so the absence of proof is becoming evidence of an inherently dangerous psychological atmosphere. And so it's kind of a circular argument, and that's what we need to be very concerned about. In the ordinary case, there's like physical injuries where the parents might say, oh, he, they, the child fell on the playground, but the doctors are saying, this is, wasn't a fall. You know, this, this child has been beaten. That's the type of situation where we want the police to come in and intervene. We haven't got that type of evidence in this case. About 300 of these children are under the age of four. Why, you know, these, these, this category of cases, they do not represent 
anything, uh, any allegations of abuse or rape or forced marriage. 300 out of the 400. So I would, if I were the judge in the case, these 300 youngsters, age four and under, would go back home. Second thing is the boys. We hear a lot of allegations about rape, forced marriage, statutory rape, these kinds of things. There isn't these type of allegations of beatings, physical abuse of the boys. So the boys should go home. The rationale that the state is using to say, no, they all have to remain in state custody, is this bizarre and dangerous argument that any child that goes back is in immediate danger of like psychological abuse because of the beliefs of this church. That's a dangerous proposition. Now, this church has beliefs that I don't agree with. Um, and I think, you know, allegations of a rape, child abuse should be investigated, and no religious group gets a pass from these laws. So those types of allegations should be investigated, and where there's proof, they should be prosecuted. We have to take a look at what the state is arguing here and the legal precedent they're trying to set. In a free society, the government uh, is not in the role of deciding, you know, what is permissible beliefs that, you know, a church can hold or what actually what parents are teaching their kids. Um, this isn't uh, the the role we want the state to be in, and that's why we have to be cl- pay close attention to what is being done in this situation. It's a dangerous precedent that's being set. That's why we should all be concerned no matter what your religious beliefs are. Religious belief is one thing, but the practice of that religion, how it expresses itself in terms of the structure of the family, they were basically conducting themselves in a way with regard to uh, marriages in a way that is illegal. Well, that is the allegation. But we have to remember, when you look at Texas law, uh, the age in which uh, a person can get married is 18, and then uh, girls who are 16 or 17 can get married with the consent of their parents. And that law was only changed recently in 2005. As recently as 2004, under Texas law, uh, girls uh, the ages of 14, 15 could get married with uh, the consent of their parents. So these allegations are swirling around that, you know, we have forced marriages, we have under underage uh, children getting mixed up in here, and those are serious allegations. They should be investigated. But again, we're the what's the problem here is that the state is getting beyond specific cases and actual proof. They're they're holding on to infants. They're holding on to boys. Uh, this is the this is the thing that should be we should be asking questions about. Why 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 is that? And again, they go into court and they're making the argument that the boys can't go home because the place is uh, inherently coercive. There's a danger of psychological abuse, and that's just a lame claim. It's a bogus claim, and we should be worried that the the um, courts are signing off on this. Again, there should be a very high standard of proof for the government to come in and to take somebody's kids away. Um, there are situations where that's appropriate, um, but in, when you look at the evidence in this case, um, there's not much there. And so I, I th- I'm not saying the investigation should be closed down. It should continue. But they've got to gather real evidence and proof to say, this, this young woman is in custody because we have this evidence. And, and that's what's lacking in the case. Aside from the claims offered by Child Protective Services, is there a problem with the manner in which this is proceeding legally? There is, because the parents of the children and the attorneys 
for the children are going into court now, and they're trying to present evidence to the judge that these kids should be returned home. So they're coming into court, and they want to present certified birth certificates, Social Security numbers, and tax returns to show that there's no problem with these particular kids. And Child Protective Services is coming back and saying, well, all of these documents may have been forged. We cannot rely upon them. The problem here is that Child Protective Services is going to use that type of evidence in order to prove that people have committed crimes, but the same type of evidence cannot be used in order to exculpate people. And it's the same with the testimony of the children. If the children uh, in their interviews say, um, I love my parents, I love the home, I want to go back home right now, that is going to be considered as a child in denial who does not want to admit abuse. But for the child who says, who says um, I don't want to go back home, um, or I like... I like these foster parents better, that is going to be considered as evidence that the child, the parents are somehow abusive and the child should not be returned to their home. So we have to be very careful about um, the evidence that is being used in this case because it's turning into a self-fulfilling prophecy um, on, the, on the part of the government. Uh, they can pick and choose the evidence that they want to convict people of crimes and to remove children from homes, but the same type of evidence cannot be used for the parents to regain custody of their children. And this is something that the judge does not seem to be aware of, and she seems to be going along with the police and child protective services. So this is another thing that we need to keep an eye on as far as the legal precedents that are being put in place for the drastic situation of where the government is going to come in and take kids away from their parents and take them permanently away from their homes. Tim Lynch is the director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. This is the Cato Daily Podcast. Full event videos are available at our website, cato.org.